This is the Bill Kelly Show podcast. It's sticker shock, I guess, as much as anything else. When you look at the difference in what we paid for gasoline, say, 10 days ago and what we're paying now, and uh, many analysts are saying this is only the beginning, that we're going to see a rise in prices even more than what we've seen over the last couple of days. Joining us to talk about the impact is uh, Ian Lee, of course, from the Sprott School of Business, professor there at Carleton University. And uh, great to have Ian back on the program here. First of all, Happy New Year. Ian, good to have you with us again yes, today. Happy New Year. Thanks for uh, me. Sticker shock, I go past two gas stations on my way into work every morning. Yeah. And uh, 97, I think, is what I was paying uh, about a week or so ago, 92, 93 in some places. Uh, it's up to about a dollar ten now, I saw yeah. this morning. And, uh, and uh, on the way up from what we're told, Ian. Yes. What's going on? Well, I, we know the cap and trade, uh, and we understand the government's gone to great lengths to explain to us why they're doing this. Are people going to buy into this? Um, well, there's two separate issues uh, in your question. One is, will it really impact um, uh, our uh, emissions in Ontario? And then secondly, your, your other question is, will p- people accept it uh, politically? Uh, I've been skeptical, and and I certainly am very aware of the the arguments in the economic literature and research for uh, carbon tax. And by the way, it can be expressed very simply: it's really a variation on supply and demand. Price goes up, demand goes down. That's that's what carbon tax is predicated on. If if something becomes more expensive, we tend to buy less of it. So you know, when color TVs, uh, large screen TVs, first came out at five thousand dollars, very few people bought them. And as the price came down, 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 more and more people bought them. Uh, you don't have to have a carbon tax. Market prices operate like a carbon tax. It rations something by its scarcity. More scarce something is, the more expensive it is, and the fewer of us buy it. So I don't have any problem with that fundamental logic. I mean, it's been around for as long as markets and human beings have existed. Sure. My problem with it is this. Um, uh, is is that first the big picture? Canada is 1.6 percent of the world's emissions. So anyone who thinks that we're going to solve the world's problems in Ontario are, are just simply misguided empirically. Uh, you know, it's not going to happen. Even if all of Canada shut down and and we stopped using all natural gas, all oil, all gasoline everywhere, we would have an an infinitesimally tiny impact on on the world. That's the first problem. The second problem, of course, is our biggest partner in the world, our trading partner, is of course the United States, and they are absolutely not going down this road. So what we're doing is putting our firms at a competitive disadvantage against the United States. But thirdly and most importantly, Bill, this is what I really want to get at. The logic of the carbon tax is as follows, and it can be stated very simply. By raising the price, it's going to cause all of us to change our behavior over time. That is to say, we'll stop using fossil fuels, or at least dramatically reduce our use of fossil fuels. That is the assumption of a carbon tax. And I argue that that assumption is, in this context, is not warranted because, well, that normally applies to what I call discretionary goods. I don't have to go to a movie. I don't have to buy a bottle of wine. But I do have to heat my house in January. Uh, in February and March. I don't have a choice. If I don't, my pipes freeze. And so I have, uh, to use the jargon of, econom- of econo- economists, um, we, uh, we have no elasticity of demand. Our demand for energy is not elastic, depending on price. We'll pay whatever the price is. If my natural gas bill goes up 10 or 20 percent, I am going to pay it. It means I will have less money, to spend on other things, such as going to restaurants or going to, you know, hockey games or whatever. But in other words, I will take the money out of some other part of my budget. 
Uh, and so the argument or the implicit assumption that you and I are going to go out over time, and for example, with home heating, we're going to rip out our, our natural gas uh, furnace, which heats 65% of homes in Canada, by the way, and replace it with electric heat and electric wiring, uh, which I estimate by my own calculations is about three times as expensive for the same square footage house. And, and so that is just not going to happen. What we're going to do instead is pay the higher price, but not change our behavior by getting off of natural gas home heating, for example. And so it, the, the, the premise of the carbon tax is radically flawed. On the transportation side, which admittedly uh, accounts for a large amount of energy consumption in Canada, around 35%, I don't dispute that it's going to modify our behavior. I mean by that, some of us will start carpooling because the price of gas is going to go up, 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 up. So some will start carpooling. Some may go on to mass transit uh, and start uh, tran taking, uh, you know, LRT or buses. Some may start walking. But the uh, belief that most of us are going to give up the automobile, at least the traditional automobile, again, is not warranted. We are the second coldest country in the world. That's United Nations data. Second coldest average winter temperature. And we are the second largest country in the world, which means we have very small densities. We have the lowest density number of people per square kilometer in the world. What does that mean in plain English? A country that's really cold and really big uses a lot of energy to A, move people around, and B, heat them and keep them warm in their houses, in hospitals, in schools, in radio stations, in office buildings, in factories, etc. And so we are fundamentally going to continue to use, as the IEA predicts, the International Energy Authority, which is a big believer in alternatives, and yet they predict that every Western country is going to continue to be mostly dependent on fossil fuels until the middle of the century because fossil fuels are used because they're so efficient, they're so practical. And alternative energy uh, uh, is not there yet. It can be used in limited uh, areas, in very small areas. It's a niche product, but it is not a mass market product yet. And they're predicting that won't happen until the middle of the, of the century. So all of this carbon tax is really, in my view, a revenue grab by government and an ideological um, statement by those deeply committed environmentalists. Look, we're doing something, and this is it. And I know it's, it, you know, they look at other parts of the world, and they say, for instance, in some Scandinavian countries, which actually started doing this way back in 1990, and they say there has been some level of, of, of changing in, in of the guard, especially when it comes to home heating. But the alternative, I'm, I'm led to believe, uh, in, in especially in, in places like Finland and Sweden, is electricity. Well, that's not a, a, even an option here in Ontario. We pay the highest rates in North America. Uh, so, I mean, you know, I'm, I'm going to cut back on my natural gas and go to hydro. Are you nuts? Exactly. I mean, it just doesn't work. And, and listen, I'm not one of these climate deniers. I understand we have Same to here. do something about carbon yep. uh, emissions, and, 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 and I, I believe in climate change. I know what's happening yep. around us. So I, I, I'm with you on that part of the argument. But here's, and you and I have had this discussion about many other things that government initiatives have tried to move us towards. You can't force us to change. You've got to present an alternative right. that's going to be viable, that's going to be convenient and affordable. Right. And they haven't done that yet. Precisely. That is precisely the point. And again, I too want to echo what you said. This is not, uh, my, my problem in debating this with environmentalists is that they go, they, they go cheap really quickly. And I'm, I'm being very fair. You know, they'll immediately say, oh, you're a climate denier. No, I'm not. I'm saying we have to do this in a balanced, 
reasonable way, and we have to look at the reality of our world. Are there realistic alternatives for millions and millions of Ontarians or Canadians to switch from home heating oil or natural gas, which the two together are over 80% of all the homes, is it realistic or credible to believe we can switch? Now that they immediately jump up, because I've had these debates, and say, ah, electricity. Well, I've done my own research, because I have some friends who do have 100% electric heat, and I've tried to compare apples to apples. I have an 1,800-square-foot home heated by natural gas in Ottawa, and it's retrofitted, insulated, as are the uh, comparables. And I have friends who are paying literally triple. I'm paying about $1,000 a year all in natural gas to heat my home. They're paying three to $4,000 to heat an 1,800-square-foot uh, house that has been renovated, retro-insulated, and so forth. I know that's not an exactly precise calculation, but it's a pretty good ballpark estimate that it's somewhere I calculate about three times, not 3% more, 300 or 400% more, and that does not count the cost of bringing in an electrician to wire up your whole house, which would run into the thousands of dollars. So my point being that in, this is not a viable alternative anytime soon until we have a breakthrough in so-called mass storage technology. In other words, the whole premise of alternative um, uh, electricity, I'm talking wind and solar, is that you can store the stuff. Well, we don't know how to. Bill Gates, one of the richest men in the world, is spending a lot of his private fortune investing in mass storage technology because he has said repeatedly, we are not going to get off fossil fuels until we can store the energy of wind and solar because the wind doesn't always blow and the sun doesn't always shine. So therefore, we have to be able to store it. And right now, we can't store it, which is why Ontario is shipping billions of dollars of electricity that, we're, that is surplus, and they're shipping it to the states and selling it to the border states at way below market so that they can then offer reduced electricity prices to manufacturing companies to relocate from Ontario to Michigan, which is really crazy. Yeah, let's talk about the economic impact for just a second. You mentioned, obviously, this is going to have an impact on, on not just our, you know filling the gas tank and not just uh, the thermostat in our homes, but in just about every other facet, too. Yes. At the end of the year, Premier Wynne, during her end-of-the-year interviews, uh, the one in particular with, with Global TV, uh, admitted that she said, you know what, we, we mishandled the hydro file. The, you know, the, the rate increases, et cetera, was wrong. It had an impact on people that we didn't really foresee. Uh, interesting admission. I, I can see the same speech. I hope she kept it in the top of her drawer because she's going to have to make the same thing about this. This is going to impact the cost of groceries because, I mean, you know, Sobeys and, and, and everybody else, I mean, it's going to cost them more because the guys that are shipping the stuff, the guys that are growing the stuff are also going to see increases. They're going to pass those on to the consumer. This is going to have an impact on just about every facet of our lives. I think that we're going to see inflation go up significantly, although our wages are not going up. Inflation will because the carbon tax, and I've actually talked to people, and some of my students who are wonderful young people, but they don't, you know, they don't read everything. And they say, oh, well, you know, it's not, I'm not paying for it. It's the oil companies they're going to pay for it. And this is one of the great uh, urban legends that have been, I think, uh, promulgated by the environmentalists to get support for carbon taxes. They're saying, oh, well, we're going to go after those big, bad, evil oil and gas companies. They're going to pass it on in the price of all their goods, all of their oil and gas products. And that's going to be passed on through the supply chain of Canada to every business that uses energy, which, by the way, is every company and every organization in Canada. My university spends a lot of money every year heating the buildings so we don't sit in the classroom in January at minus 20. And so we heat with natural gas. What a surprise. 
and and so my point being that that as a consequence this is going to affect the price of agricultural goods it's going to drive up the cost of you know cucumbers and potatoes and kumquats and this isn't about the exchange rate of the can dollar this will drive up the price of domestic agricultural goods could be milk or cheese or beef or poultry or pork uh, because they agriculture is very energy intensive it's only two percent of gdp but it uses ten percent of energy in canada so it's going to pass it on to there all the goods and all the stores of all the stores that all of us shop in are shipped there by truck uh... typically by truck eighteen-wheel trucks on down the four oh one and so forth that's going to be passed on through the price of goods and it's going to fall disproportionately on lower uh... income uh... people uh, because of that. But, you know, I want to address, go back to Premier Wynne's uh, interview that you just mentioned. Why I found it disingenuous what she said. Well, we didn't understand the impact. Well, anybody can understand that if you're deliberately trying to increase the price of electricity, it's going to fall on low-income people more, dis, more painfully than on high-income people. And you don't need a person with a Ph.D. in economics to tell you that. That's the first point. But the second point is even much more fundamental, Bill. They should never, if you are a dedicated environmentalist and you want people to switch from fossil fuel to electricity, the last thing you do is drive the price of electricity up. If anything, you should be saying, how can I drive the price of electricity down to get people to switch from oil, home heating oil, for example, or diesel, or any kind of fossil fuel? How do we get them to switch to electricity? The last thing you should be doing is driving the price of electricity up. I've been converting in my own house things that run on electricity to natural gas because the price of electricity is so expensive. So I switched from an electric dryer to a natural gas dryer, and I've saved myself an enormous amount of money. Yeah, we've done the same thing in our house. I did the same thing with the water tank a few years ago. I went from, well, a few years ago, three or four years ago, went from electric uh, water tank to a natural gas. In other words, their policies, which they claim are to save the environment and to get us to use more electricity, have done exactly the opposite. They're causing us to try to economize on our electricity because the bills are going up so quickly, and they're causing us to try to switch to natural gas, which is exactly the opposite of what they claim that they're trying to achieve. So that's how deeply confused the wind government is on this file. So much more and so many different angles to this. I've got about 30 seconds left here. Uh, where this has been accepted, and I use that term advisedly here, yes. uh, in the past in places like British Columbia, part of the, I think, the rationale there was that the, through a series of rebates, uh, the money that's collected through this yeah. this tax, and that's what this really is, uh, goes back to an, to the citizens. I, I don't see a whole lot of that happening here in Ontario, which, is, which really, I think, raises the, the level of skepticism. One uh, very quickly, that has been one of the central arguments by the advocates of a carbon tax, that it must be revenue neutral. That is to say, the money raised from the carbon tax must be recycled back to the citizens through lower income tax rates. That did happen in B.C., which is why I think there is support for it out there, or at least a fair amount of support. And it is not. There's no evidence that that is happening in Ontario. And they're going to keep those monies, again, giving credibility to people like me, who are saying it's just nothing but a tax grab because they're not rebating those carbon taxes back to us through lower tax rates. They're keeping the money. In other words, they're driving up the overall cost of or revenues from taxation from you and I to the government. So it's a tax grab. It's not about saving the, the planet. It's not about saving Ontario. It's about getting more money to spend. You're listening to The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on AM 900 CHML. Of course, are the new rules regarding street checks and carding uh, with not just Hamilton police, but police services right across the province of Ontario. 
Some are hoping that this is going to be a new beginning to try to deal with some of the anger and frustration uh, that has gone on over the last number of years because of the way that uh, past policies have been implemented. Is this the dawning of a new day? Will these new uh, regulations that are now into effect actually address some of the concerns and problems? Sarah Jamba joins us, co-president of the McMaster Womanist Organization and co-organizer of the Anti-Racism Action Initiative. And uh, we welcome Sarah to the Bill Kelly Show. Good morning, Sarah, and Happy New Year. Hi, Bill. Thank you for having me. Well, thanks for having us, uh, having the time to, to join us today. I know you've been very vocal about some of the concerns that have been raised. Uh, the province has said that they've heard you and they've heard other groups and, and individuals that have raised some concerns about this. And, and with that in mind, they have constructed these new initiatives. Are you, uh, are you optimistic? Do you, do you like what you see here? I think um, the changes that we see are a good step in the right direction. Um, but the fact of the matter is it's not... It's not by any means revolutionary. It doesn't take away the fact that there are a lot of people in the community who are still going to be disproportionately affected by the fact that police can still go and card individuals. Regulations have existed again and again um, to stop um, Hamilton police from overstepping their boundaries and adhering to human rights. And we've seen again and again these regulations not being followed. And so while this is a good step in the right direction, I don't think we should stop at simple regulation changes. We need entire entire systemic reform. The numbers were there, and, and, and those are obvious. And I know that there's some dispute uh, when, when you talk to some members of police services right across the province. Uh, but when you look at the, the disproportionate targeting of, of homeless people, of people of color, indigenous people, uh, that, that that's there. I mean, I, I think that's indisputable. As to why they're doing it, well, that's depending on which side you listen to right now. Do you see that, that these new regulations, Sarah, have actually addressed those concerns? I don't think so. When, when you see it clearly documented that 75% of people who were carded between 2010 and 2014 in Hamilton were black, um, and you see cases of people being pulled over in Hamilton simply for driving while being black, the fact that um, police have to go and tell people that they have the right to walk away when they're being carded, there's a question why they're being carded to begin with. I think having to ask somebody to prove their existence while walking around is going against basic human rights. We see Matthew Green having to go to court right now, the first black city councillor in Hamilton, and he's going to court because he was carded for simply standing at a bus stop. There's something fundamentally wrong with the practice of carding that's not being addressed through these new regulation changes. So while these regulations say, yes, police can still card, but they have to just tell people that they have the right to walk away, that doesn't address the power imbalance between the cop at the time and somebody who's just walking around, being intimidated by somebody who's asking a lot of questions, asking random individuals to ask for their ID. If a police officer came up to me and said, hey, um, what are you doing here? Can I see your ID? Um, you can, of course, walk away. There's still an imbalance there. I would still feel afraid and have to show my ID. There's a fundamental issue of trust here that's not being addressed, and a fundamental issue of people having to prove their existence. The other side of the coin, and you've heard the, the, the debate, and you've been a part of the debate, Sarah, for the, for the last little while, is of others in, in the community on, on both sides of this issue. 
and and police will say, well, look at you know, street checks are still an effective way for us to to gather information uh, to find out what people are doing. And and they use the example. I mean, if you see somebody who looks out of place at three o'clock in the morning walking through a neighborhood, do they do do, do they be should they be there? You know, I, I, and, and there's that element of it. But what we're seeing here is an awful lot of these things seem to be happening, first of all, in the downtown core. And second of all, the thing that I found distressing when I, I heard some of these statistics about this uh, that came out during some of the public hearings is an awful lot of the people that are being uh, st- checked or carded, as, as the case might be, are are known to police. In other words, they're the ones that they just, I just did this to this guy last week and I'm doing it to him again this week. And, and we get into the situation where people are being stopped like this. You already know who they are. You already know the story. Yet uh, they're doing something that is considered to be on the border of, of, of legal, I suppose. Uh, so they do this again and again and again. That seems to be a problem. There's no evidence that the people who are being stopped repeatedly are, are doing things, quote-unquote, on the border of illegal. I would like to question, um, what are what are the... What are the um, the sort of boundaries that police are crossing to card individuals over and over again. I would beg the question that does the fact that the same individuals being carded over and over again in the community lead to gentrification, lead to these specific people who are being targeted having to move out of communities to quote-unquote clean up downtown? Are we trying to push out people who maybe don't look a certain way, dress a certain way, um, in order to make sure that people in the community are comfortable and less afraid? And I'd go farther and ask then what are people afraid of? Are we afraid of people in dreadlocks? Are we afraid of people because they're black and walking around at 3 in the morning? Are we afraid of the city councilor who's standing in a bus stop because he's black? You can't get away from the fact that certain people are being targeted because of the way we look and dress. It's not so much that they're behaving illegally. Otherwise, they wouldn't just be asked for their ID repeatedly. They would be in jail. So and it's not for community members, I think, to make that decision. Well, and and I understand that that can happen. That there there may be some people that say, "Hey, you know, I feel uncomfortable having that individual hanging around here. Get rid of them." And 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 that can be problematic. But I mean, it is problematic that that there's an attitudinal situation like this. And I, 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 I have some sympathy for the police position on this. But this goes beyond regulation, doesn't it, Sarah? Because the word I keep hearing more and more from those that are are, are frustrated by this is is attitude. Uh, and and it's not the regulations. Are there? In other words, there's an argument to be made. I think that even the past regulations might have been okay, but it's the attitude that people use oftentimes to to try to implement those regulations. Mm-hmm. How do you address that? I think we need um, a complete systemic overhaul of police practices and moving toward more community-based practices of policing. Um, police historically are have been used as sort of ways for the state to make sure that we are monitoring people who we think are questionable, right? So it's not necessarily the police system's fault that they're acting that way, because there's legislations like Bill C-51 that exist in place beyond this to make sure that people are being targeted and data is being collected and people are being monitored. Um, how you address this, I think, is completely abolishing carding for one. That's a small step. I don't think these band-aid solutions or regulations to make sure that people um, know their rights is the only way. Because who who is who is sort of translating the rights to the civilians? It's still the cops that are practicing carding, correct? And regardless of 
sort of regulations that we see, police still have the ability to go above and beyond those regulations and harm civilians. We see the cases like Anthony Divers, who was killed by Hamilton police in around October, when instead of being shot, they could have used a a taser. And so I think what we need is less power going toward the police and more power going into communities to make sure that we have the abilities to monitor and police ourselves, if that makes sense. And that's going to take years. But until then, I'd like to see carding abolished completely because there are scenarios and and we've seen this happen in in debates on any issue sarah doesn't it it could be carding it could be any number of different things uh where you're going to get you know scenarios that are developed to try to substantiate somebody's point of view and and i understand where police are coming from i mean if you know for instance in my neighborhood if if there are a series of break-ins or car thefts or something and 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 there's somebody walking around the streets at three o'clock in the morning, and the officer thinks uh, maybe maybe it's okay. Maybe I can understand. Maybe is, is is that the perpetrator? Let's go and find out about that. I get that scenario, but when it's happening, for instance, at Gore Park downtown, uh, and is it really because somebody's you know being offensive? Is it I, again? It comes down to attitude, doesn't it? I think yes, it comes down to attitude to a certain extent. Or <laughs> I go as far as to say blatant racism, right? Because certain people are being stopped in areas because of what they look like. If somebody breaks into a car and police are around, who's to say that (laughs) that person is the person walking around, let's say, coming back from the grocery store could allegedly be, like, the suspect. I think it goes down to, okay, this person looks questionable for existing outside of their home at 3 a.m., and so let me stop and ask questions. It does come down to racism, (laughs) in a sense, but at the same time, I don't think it can just stop at attitudinal barriers. We're not going to inherently erase racism through legislation, but what we have to do is make sure that we're abolishing practices completely that perpetuate racism. And so, yes, the first step is to address attitudinal barriers and make it harder um, for police to be able to act on that. But if we abolish the practice of carding completely because it's unconstitutional, um, then the attitudinal barrier of itself becomes less of an issue. Well, and especially when you look at the numbers, and they were, now we're getting back into ratios here, aren't we? Uh, you know, that if an officer stops somebody at 3 o'clock in the morning and says, hey, are you okay? What are you doing? Is everything all right? And, and there might be a legitimate reason. But when you start looking at the numbers of people that are stopped and you realize that an awful lot of them are ethnic minorities or, or people of color, uh, you got to ask yourself, is there an ulterior motive to, to the stop in the first place? Yeah, exactly. I completely agree. And, and therein lies the problem. So it, it sounds to me as if dialogue is, is going to be important. Now, when you talk to police services about this, uh, right across the province, and we have on this program over the last little while addressed this, uh, we, we hear that police will say, you know, we're already doing that. We're already, we already engaged in, in community policing. We're already engaged in outreach programs right now. That's already happening. Is it, to, is it happening to your satisfaction, though, Sarah? Well, when we hosted the Anti-Racism Action Initiative, we had a turnout of around 250 people. And one of the like more prominent conversations happened around carding. And we haven't released the report yet. We're still working on it. But one of the major concerns that came out of um, the Anti-Racism Action Initiative was the lack of trust. People don't trust the police to act in ways that are fair to minority communities, in ways that adhere to their human rights. Um, 
And, like, there was a call from the Integration Action Initiative to abolish carding completely. So it's not enough to keep having dialogues about what they could do better. I think we have to go... We have to start listening to what the community wants. And I think we're never going to see full change unless the practice is completely stopped. How do you, how do you bridge that gap, though, that, that information gap that goes on there, and, and, and to create that, that, that better relationship that you're looking for between police services and community? Uh, I, I mean, it's one thing to have a, a, a meeting such as you did, the ta- and there have been town halls. Of course, there was the, the one at City Hall some time ago uh, where the minister actually showed up for a little while and heard some of the input into this. But, but those are, and I'm not trying to be flippant about this, those are one-offs. You really need something on a, on a, on a more consistent basis, don't you? Yeah. So what we're hoping to do is to publish this report and then sort of assign different parts of the report. We have 32 demands, assign different demands to different places in the community um, and sort of lobby to the Hamilton Police, McMaster University, Hamilton Wentworth District School Board, every single place that was mentioned in the report um, and sort of talk about the different demands that were lobbied and have that be a starting point. Um, So hopefully it's not just talking. Um, there are actual demands that the Hamilton police can work toward addressing. One of them is the abolishment of carding, but of course there are other demands as well. Um, and hopefully this is a start in the right direction of not just talking about racism and carding in Hamilton, but actually working together to address some of the demands. Is this issue, uh, the, the whole attitude, of, uh, about that attitude of, of, of between policing and community, is, is this a microcosm of, of a greater issue of a societal problem? Because uh, we heard that talk. I mean, as we watched, for instance, the presidential debate as as it evolved in, in 2016 and, and, and some of the, not so much from the candidates, although there's some concern about at least one of them anyway, but but when, when you'd see some of the comments from, from the public and you watch some of the information that's forthcoming on social media now and some of the vitriol that's out there, I'm wondering if there's a bigger problem here that, that we need to deal with. Um, a bigger problem in terms of a societal attitude towards race. I mean, uh, you know, we, I, I think there might have been a certain smugness in our society over the last little while that, you know what, we've tamed this now. We're smarter now. We're more understanding. We we get where people are coming from. We're more of an international community. Uh, what we saw and what we heard in 2016 may be just a, a cold reminder that, you know, we're not as, as, as small, L liberal, or as open-minded as we thought we were as a society. You know, I think... That rhetoric is always funny to me because I think the people that are bearing the brunt of racism, like at least in Hamilton or in Canada or whatever, always knew that racism existed. Um, the people that are shocked now are the people that really didn't have to bear the brunt of that racism to begin with. Um, they thought their behavior was fine and dandy. They didn't recognize carding as a problem in, Ham- in Hamilton and Canada. They didn't recognize issues that like our communities have been dealing with for years. And this is a this is not. This is not a new conversation because of Trump or whatever. It's just that more people are becoming aware of it. And these band-aid solutions, unfortunately, are just going to bamboozle people into thinking that solutions are being, you know, worked toward when really parting will still fundamentally be unconstitutional. Um, So it's unfortunate that the main rhetoric right now is, oh, my gosh, look what's happening in America. Things are so horrible when really these things have been happening (laughs) since slavery before then and but but didn't we as, as in some circles of anyway society you know can maybe try to con ourselves to say well you know we finally elected a black president so i mean we've crossed that hurdle and we've done this <laughs> we've done that so we're a lot better than we were a couple of generations ago maybe yeah. not maybe not so much 
Of course not. And then we have the Hamilton's first black city councilor being carted for standing at a bus stop. These issues have always existed, um, despite having a president who is half black or despite having people in positions of power who are people of color. We have to we have to go beyond that and start questioning the systems in place that continue to perpetuate racism. Where do you go from here? I mean, I know you're writing your report on, on, on the work that you've done on this right now, and, and we look forward to reading that when it does come out. Uh, <laughs> police are looking at this, and they say that, well, the training is now in place right now. They're aware of the new regulations. Uh, officers out on the street, uh, they say, will adhere to these regulations. Uh, but that, that, that doesn't seem to have bridged that gap yet. No, I mean, regulations exist and police should adhere to them, but there's always room for not adhering to them, and that's the fundamental issue. Um, people in the police force can still choose to or can still get away with, as we've seen again and again, not adhering to these re- regulations. So what do we do now? Well, the McMaster Romanists are going to be working on finalizing this report, as we said. Um, we're going to have another community meeting sometime in January to sort of lay out all of the demands and figure out how to lobby each of the concerns that we have. So there's 32 and we're going to be pushing for each one of them to be met. But specifically, we're going to be meeting with the Hamilton police um, and sort of advocating and pushing them to meet our specific demands. And one of them is the abolishment of carding, but we also have um, better training. Yes, they're working on training and adhering to these um, new regulations, but there's always more work to be done. You're listening to The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on AM 900 CHML. As we head into a brand new year uh, and a set of challenges for politicians at all levels, we talked about the provincial government in the last hour, obviously, with the the, uh, the new cap-and-trade program that's in effect. But what about locally? What about the impact uh, of 2017? What's going to happen here at the municipal level? Uh, that's the impact, of course, that has the most uh, feel to you and me because it impacts our property taxes, our neighborhoods, etc. What are the city councillors in Hamilton facing as, in the way of challenges? Uh, this may sound a little bit like a, a, a rerun show, because a lot of the stuff we're going to talk about is stuff from 2016. Joining us to uh, get into the meat and potatoes of uh, municipal politics is Laura Babcock, president of Power Group. Uh, Laura, thank you so much for the time. Happy New Year, first of all. My pleasure, Bill. Happy New Year to you. You guys have a good holiday? I had a fantastic holiday, but I have to admit, I'm kind of glad that all the partying's done and it's time to get back to the gym. So. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, that treadmill's looking uh, rather daunting at this stage, but very necessary. So we have to deal with that. Let, let's, let's talk about some of the challenges going into Hamilton right now. And as I mentioned in the preamble, uh, a lot of the stuff we're going to talk about is, is really kind of a redux of, of 2016 because they were unresolved issues. And, and I'll start right off with the elephant in the room, and then, of course, is light rail transit. Are we going to see any more clarity this year than we did last year? It's very frustrating, even in the public discourse on this issue. There was just a, an op-ed that I was reading uh, just yesterday or today, again, you know, questioning the billion-dollar investment, making the arguments that the LRT, as designed, will be essentially out-of-date technology by the time we get it. I mean, I understand that people have reservations, but continuing to argue the fundamentals of the project after it's well past that point in terms of securing the funding and starting the work on the project, that's just very frustrating, I think. So for the public discourse, it seems like we're going around in circles. There are some councillors who are continuing to oppose the project, I think, more to cater to their re-election possibilities than much else, because some of them were certainly part of approving it uh, all along the line. 
So, I mean, there's a lot of nonsense around the LRT that's happening. There are legitimate questions that need to be answered. There's lots of specifics that people have a right to inquire about. But from a point of view of are we going to get anywhere with this, I think from the point of view of the actual conversation on LRT, probably not. I think we're in this circular argument. From the point of view of the actual project moving forward, if you listen to the city manager and the mayor, they're certainly indicating that things are going along on schedule. So uh, we will get on with LRT, Bill, but the community may continue to fight about it, which is kind of how Hamilton operates. The subtitle of the discussion here is going to be Splinters in Your Britches. I mean, there are too many people on City Council that have been on the fence on this issue. Are, are they going to fall one way or another? Well, you know what? We have an election looming. And uh, I know maybe for other people they say, wait a sec, 2017 is not an election year municipally, but in the world of politics, you know, it's coming up. They're coming to that point in their term where they're starting to look ahead. And they're starting to look at what their constituents are going for. And some of the politicians on Hamilton Council have been all too concerned with re-election over the years than perhaps where the city should go as a whole on a particular issue. So from are these fence-sitters going to get off the fence? I think they're going to see what most fence-sitters do, is which way the wind is blowing the most strongly, Bill. And if it seems like a winning proposition to oppose the LRT right up to the election to say, hey, I protected the interests of my ward, uh, then I think some are going to continue to do that. If it looks as though the city wants to move on and the people in their wards want to move on to other topics, then they'll probably say, oh, well, you know, we, we raised our opposition, uh, but, you know, we want to do what's good for the city. So I, I leave it up to the political winds on whether or not they're going to get off the fence. And that's going to be ongoing, and I, I agree with you. I think there's going to even be more polarization, I think, uh, as, as they start looking at 2018 and the election, which, I, I you know, for those that are suggesting that there needs to be a referendum on, on, on LRT, the municipal election of 2018 is really the de facto referendum, isn't it? Well, I think we already had the referendum in the last municipal election in the mayor's So did I. <laughs> and that's what it came down to, right? And the one who won was the fence-sitter, the uh, splinters and the britches candidate, to your point. The one who said, I'm for LRT, but, you know, let's wait and see. We'll work it out later. We'll have a citizen's panel. <laughs> you know, the one who took the safe route, Fred Eisenberger, is the one who ultimately prevailed in that contest that really came down to the ballot issue of LRT. And so I, I felt as though we'd had the referendum on LRT already. The suggestion of having another one, even Chad Collins, who floated that trial balloon, had pulled it back, realizing that there wasn't really the will for a plebiscite on the issue. So from a point of view of the staff, that's what I keep thinking of, Bill, is it's not just that there's a frustration with the public discussion on this or that there's time wasted by all of us arguing in circles. It's the fact that city staff have put years into this project. LRT is the spine of a bigger transportation infrastructure network, including the BLAST network and GO. And all of this has been planned and thought out and mapped out and worked on and council approved for years. So for them to have to keep hearing it, I think maybe they can just, or they've just learned how to tune it out and just get back to their desks and do their job. But it's got to be frustrating for them even more than us. Let's talk about the Claremont access, uh, which has become uh, almost the, the, the millstone around the neck of city councillors right now, as the Lister block was at one point, as, as downtown core redevelopment was at one point, uh, as, as LRT was at one point. It, it, in many people's minds, Lauren, I know you've watched this on social media over the last couple of months now, uh, this has really become the, 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 the flashpoint for an awful lot of discontent right now, saying, there they go, city councillors messed this up again. Uh, it's collapsed. Uh, the the downbound lanes are closed still. It's now we're told it could cost millions upon millions of dollars to try to even rectify that to bring it back to where it was. Uh, what's council going to do with this? 
Well, this is always one of those issues of infrastructure where if you leave the repairs, if you keep kicking the can down the road on these major problems that are looming, they just get more expensive as they go. You know, we all know with our own household repairs bill that you might see that leak or you might see that crack in the foundation or you might see that whatever issue and say, I should deal with it. I'm going to put it off. It becomes more expensive. It gets bigger. The leak gets bigger. The foundation crack gets worse. It's the same thing with any city infrastructure. And I think one of the issues that Hamiltonians have had with their council over the years is that council tends to spend its time and its energies often fighting on these, as we just talked about, these circular arguments on, on a stretch of highway for 40 years or on the LRT for a decade. They tend to fight on these things and put tremendous energy and political capital into these arguments and these power positioning issues where, you know, the other things they're missing. It's kind of like, you know, arranging the deck chairs on the Titanic. So it's frustrating to watch that. And I think the reason why this Claremont access has become a flashpoint is that people are like, seriously, you knew that this thing was crumbling for a long time. We've been advised that we have to deal with it. Now we've left it. Now it's going to cost this much. You know, people get frustrated by that. I don't want to say that council completely is inept because they're not. And infrastructure issues like this happen to other cities and other countries. But the issue has to be addressed head on. It can't be, it can't come down to this, and we see this every year. Oh, we'll keep your taxes at zero increase or 1% or 2%. You know, we'll look good at the door saying we kept taxes low, but yet they need to get in the revenue to be able to take care of some of these more urgent big infrastructure issues. So I just hope that council does the responsible thing. They address the issue. It's a public safety issue. It's a transportation issue. It's, it's got, goes to the city's ability to get its work done, uh, and they need to stop playing politics with issues like this and just get the job done, get it fixed. Why do they so often wait until we reach crisis mode before they have to respond to this? I mean, this is going to cost, it's like that old commercial from years ago, you can pay me now or you can pay me later. Uh, you know, I'm sure there, there were engineers on staff that were saying, look, we got to do more about this. I mean, we one of the joys of living in this city is that we have an escarpment. We call it the mountain, but it's an escarpment. And you got to get up and down. And, and that that's one of the more traveled routes, of course, to do that. And how they could let it fall into disrepair is mind-boggling. Well, I think it comes down to, you know, the idea of if you have to spend money on a major infrastructure fix, then that's money that you can't throw at other pet projects or other things that are part of your your political platform or your point of view or what your constituents want. So, you know, if you have to deal with it, if you have to do the heavy lifting and the adult thing and take care of these unsexy projects that people aren't going to vote for you for, uh, it's difficult. It's easier to kick it down the, the can to the next council. It's easier to say, well, we don't want to deal with this at this point because, you know what, it's going to take money out of other things we want to spend money on that make us look more popular. Again, I, I hate to just, you know, paint all of council with the same motive of re-election and, and survival. But we have seen with the legacy of incumbency in this city, councillors who are in for a very, very long time. And you don't get to stay in a job like this that long unless you play a kind of a game. And I think these big infrastructure projects and these unsexy spending issues, uh, they get pushed aside because you know what? If you don't have to put the money there, you get to spend it elsewhere and look like a hero sometimes. And maybe that gets you reelected at the door. Let's talk about something else that uh, that I know that you get deeply involved in with uh, your work with Power Group, and that's the poverty issue here. And, and we've talked about a number of different initiatives. And City Council saying all the right things in 2016, Laura, about dealing with poverty and attacking poverty and, and, and understanding that it's a uh, it's the underpinning of an awful lot of the ills that we still have in this community right now. Uh, now they're going to have to do something about it. Now they got to put their money where their mouth is. Are they up to the job? 
I hope so. It's incredibly important that the issue be deal- dealt with in a substantive way, and I applaud the mayor. I did at the time when he wanted to make his legacy project that $50 million towards really dealing with poverty. I, I think it came on the heels of the reports that we saw from the Poverty Roundtable saying that there hadn't been sufficient progress in terms of addressing some of the fundamental issues around poverty in our community. So that kind of moonshot, if you will, about poverty in the city, I think, was well-received. It was the best front-page story I'd seen in a long time. And now it's really about, okay, well, how does that money get spent well? You know, the city has had a problem, as we know, Bill, and I've argued about this a lot on the O Show lately, and a lot of people appreciate it, that, that you know, they, they claim that there's no money for this, that, and the other thing, but they really spend their money sometimes foolishly on consultants' reports they don't follow up with and this, that, and the other thing. So this is a situation where I hope that money is spent well. I hope it doesn't come down to politics and, you know, who beats the drum the loudest in front of council or who's buddies with whom. I hope it comes down to what is going to make the most difference in the long run. What are the experts telling us? What did they say is the best investment uh, of this money in order to really eradicate poverty, to really allow everyone in the city to enjoy the boom that is coming uh, and to be able to be a part of that and not be pushed off to the side and, and stay in this terrible cycle of poverty. So my hope is that they are up to the challenge, that they, they've learned from some past uh, big decisions they've made, that playing politics was something critical does a disservice to all the taxpayers, and I hope they listen to actual evidence. You remember when they did the the bike lane or the bus lane project and they didn't even want to wait for the report to come back in? Well, I hope in this case they don't pull one of those. I hope they actually listen to what the experts say is the best investment of those dollars, and they do something that will actually sustain and fix the problem. What I'm concerned about here is they they talk the talk, and and I get that, but for instance, even late last year, there was a, an initiative that came up uh, where there was a, f- a funding shortfall, and they were really to, to basically put some people out on the street almost because of, of their lack of commitment to, to actually shore up that the, the housing fund that was available for them, right? the, the affordable housing fund that was, until there was immense public pressure, and they all of a sudden found the money uh, for this sort of thing. So I'm, I'm wondering about their level of commitment to this. Well, sure, and I, and that was a case where you know you can they could point to the province and say, well, it's a provincial shortfall. Why should we? Yeah, but we're that? tired of hearing that excuse. I understand well, that's a reality, but that's the reality. Well, we've been hearing the downloading argument or excuse for a decade or however long it's been. Right? Uh, it's a favorite battle cry of some councillors. So I think that you'd have to be completely obtuse to live in Hamilton and to be a city councillor and not realize that we have an issue with poverty in this city. The Code Red reports, all the rest of it, we understand that we've got some of the poorest neighborhoods in the country, and that's just not okay. We have children who go without food at, you know, on the weekends in this city, and, and we, that's just not okay. So I think that counselors are getting it, Bill, um, but it's going to have to, again, come down to, okay, this isn't a political football opportunity. This is an opportunity to make some lasting change by listening to the experts and by demonstrating a commitment that's going to go past the next 18 months or two years of this council. It has to be something that the city invests in for a while. Uh, and, you know, the $50 million is a great initial investment. 
It's, it's, it's interesting when you look at the priorities here, and that's obviously something that's going to come up in the days and weeks ahead. Uh, the next big thing, Laura, is uh, is going to be the, the waterfront development, of course, Pier 7 and 8, and some of the work that's going to go down uh, in, in the old, what's going to be the stadium district at one stage. Uh, they've got some grand plans. You've seen them. Uh, they've they've mm-hmm. been presented right now. Consultants have, have dipped their, their opinions into this right now. They say they want this project shovel-ready for 2018, which means they're going to have to move on this thing. Uh, in 2017. Now, uh, just like they were going to move on the stadium, just like they were going to move on LRT, just like they were going to move on the expressway, uh, I mean, is there something going to happen here, or are we just going to spin our wheels again? Well, I really hope we don't. And and I've been watching, as you know, this waterfront thing for ages. York University years and years ago did a study saying it would bring a billion dollars to Hamilton. So we are sitting on a prime opportunity and there's been a good work gone into it. I've been very happy that affordable housing is now going to be a part of it. Again, there was some public hue and cry insisting mm-hmm. that this not turn into a, a ghettoization situation. So we now have what looks like a fair plan. It looks like a, a decent plan coming in. And I just hope that council doesn't get in their own way. I mean, if they're asking the city staffers to go out and start to sell, put out RFQs and the rest of it, and start to sell this prime land, I hope that council doesn't block it with their pettiness. I hope they don't grill uh, some developers for their own personal political ends like they've done on some other projects. I hope they let staff do their job. I hope they haven't created an environment that is actually pushing away the kind of investment that we need. Um, so I think if they handle it professionally, if the city grows up a bit to meet the moment, then then this well could be ready by 2018. You raised an interesting point that I've heard from a number of different uh, people in the architectural and design world, uh, not just those greedy developers, as some people have characterized them, is that in some instances, uh, the, the job of city council is to get out of the way. Is, is that what you'd characterize uh, their, their, their role at this stage now? A hundred percent. I speak to business owners all the time in, in Hamilton who have come here, and a lot in Toronto. I was just in Toronto this morning, as you know, people who are interested in investing in Hamilton. And one of the things that puts them off is what they consider to be unprofessionalism of council. Uh, the fact that council says that they're, you know, they want to be shovel ready and they want to bring in investment, but then they want to control every aspect of it. They they slow it down. I mean, there's still tons of red tape and there's tons of political posturing, and that's not how business works. And you know, if a developer has a choice between land here that's a good value and a good opportunity and land somewhere else that's similar, they're going to go with the political culture that is more more sustainable and is more professional. So I really hope that council gets out of staff's way on this. Otherwise, they're going to be blaming each other for a decade about how they didn't maximize the opportunity at the waterfront. And that'll be a disservice to everyone, including uh, the people in poverty that we need revenue for to help lift out of poverty. The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on AM 900 CHML.